Monsters Walk With Us contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. This week, for the first time, I have a guest live in studio, my best friend, Jessica. Hello. Hello. (laughs) We're very excited to be able to be together. We've been isolating pretty much throughout the whole COVID period. So this is the second time she's been able to come up for a few weeks, and we are just trapped in my house the whole time. It's great. Also this week, we have our first listener email and shout out. Thank you so much, Dominic, for sending in the case suggestion. One of the cases this week that we're going to cover was suggested by Dominic, and they asked that I give a shout out to a musician that they really like named Addison Grace. So feel free to check her music out. I will include the link to her site in the episode description. Anybody else, please feel free to send us a letter and give us some suggestions. This week, we are going to be talking about two unsolved cases. The first, the Hinterkaifeck farm murders, which Jessica has never even heard of before I mentioned this. Correct. Yeah. So that's what we have on tap for today. The content warnings for today are murder, allegations of incest. We are also going to be talking about a case that involves murder of children. So if those things are an issue for you, now is the time you want to go ahead and nope on out of here. How do we know each other? So we know each other because I moved to Boulder in 2018 and we worked for a university in higher education, which was an experience, but it brought us together. So that's the positive. We made it out alive and now we're out on the other side. We should try really hard not to say the same thing at the same time like we usually do. This is an adventure for everyone because I've never had somebody live recording. It's always been through Zoom, so... This will be fun. Resources that I used for today's cases are Wikipedia, the Unsolved Mysteries subreddit, and a post specifically by Novantigon, and the Dark Histories podcast did a really excellent deep dive on this. They have a video up on YouTube, and their website actually has a transcription of the episode, which is really neat. Some things that are important to note. This first case that we're going to talk about is 100 years old. So a lot of the information and the statements are just gossip and rumors passed down generationally. And there was a big fire and a lot of the records were destroyed. So there's just so much really firsthand information, like true documents about this. Right, right. So this episode is going to feature a lot of wild speculation by both of us. Might not even be based in fact. We're just going to go all over the place, so we can't be held legally liable for anything we're about to say. The case we're talking about today, the Hinterkaifeck farm murders, is from Germany, where Dominic emailed us from. The Hinterkaifeck farm is owned by the Gruber family. It is a farmstead in Bavaria that's about 70 kilometers, which is 43 miles north of Munich, and it's a pretty isolated area. The Gruber family is made up of the dad, Andreas Gruber, the mom, Cecilia, daughter, Victoria, and Victoria has two kids, Cecilia Jr., named after her mother, and a son, Joseph. Also in the farmhouse is their new maid, Maria Baumgarter. It's her first day on the job. The family were disliked in the area. They were known as hardworking and helpful with business matters, but very closed off and private at home. Some people even describe them as completely reclusive. 
They never hosted any visitors or allowed any travelers to spend the night. And they were rumored to be much wealthier than everyone else in the area, but also known to be very tight-fisted with their cash. Sure. In 1922, a neighbor was quoted saying the Grubers were diligent and frugal. They lived withdrawn lives and avoided personal interaction with other people. Sure. Okay. Just like to mind their own business. I I mean, you know, there's nothing much wrong with that. Andres, the dad, is known as a helpful neighbor, but awful person. He's 62. He is rumored to beat his wife and children. And the neighbors were very critical of how he treated his family. Specifically, the children had been seen locked inside the cellar for days at a time. That's not just like, I'm reclusive. Like, that's a whole other ballpark. Yeah. Yeah. I just love how some saying these quotes are like, they're just reclusive versus others are like, no, the kids were locked in the basement. Kind of shows in 1922 how much leeway people had with their families. If you're a man, he could just do whatever he wanted. Yeah. Cezila Sr. is 72 and had been widowed before she met Andreas when she inherited the deed to Hinter Kaifak from her first husband. After marrying Andreas, she signed the ownership of the farm over to him. She had been physically abused by her father, and then later by Andreas as well. She was known as a very tough and outspoken woman, and she had Victoria about one year after she married Andreas. Okay. Victoria was 25 years old. She was the first child of Andreas and Cecilia, and two years later, a younger sister, Sophia, was born. Sophia died at the age of two. Victoria had been married to Carl Gabriel, but after a volatile marriage, Carl had been called away to war. Andreas had a lot of issues with Carl, and they argued regularly up until he was called away to war, at some points even coming to physical fights. Okay, the 20s. Roaring 20s, right? Yep. Roaring with fists. Yes. Carl is killed in the service and never returns home after being called away to war. Victoria is known as the only family member who likes to leave the house and socialize. She sang in the local church choir, and the neighbors spoke very kindly of her. She's described as willowy and tall. In May 1915, she had been sentenced to a one-month prison sentence for an incestuous relationship with her father, Andreas. And this is the same, like, he's keeping her in the basement when she was a child. Yes. And now they're... It's coming out that they're in an incestuous relationship that I'm assuming has been going on for a long time. I would say that's a safe assumption. Yeah. She goes to jail for one month and Andreas also goes to jail. In 1919, she gives birth to Joseph and everyone in town is gossiping about who Joseph's father could be. Many assume Andreas. Cezila Jr. and Joseph were seven and three at the time of the murders. And Victoria had claimed that a local farmer, Lawrence Schlittenbauer, was the father of Joseph. They had previously had, like, a very brief sexual relationship in 1918. Allegedly, Victoria and Lawrence had wanted to be married, and Lawrence went to Andreas to ask for Victoria's hand in marriage. And in response, Andreas locked Victoria into a closet. He's basically just like, well, no, because I want you. Ah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just gross. There it is. Yeah. Lawrence says, Maury, I am not the father. And zips on over to the police station. 
because he wants to let them know that Victoria and Andreas are still engaged in an incestuous relationship. After serving in prison. Yes. Okay. German flowers in the attic. As a result, Andreas is convicted of incest and jailed again. Later, Lawrence rescinds his statement and says, Maury, I am in fact the father. Okay. <laughs> Treas is released, but Lawrence is charged with filing a false report and is fined. Lawrence then says that Victoria had begged him to recant his story and offered him money to claim paternity of Joseph to cover up that Andreas is in fact father-grandpa to Joseph. You know, when I think of, you know, older stories and older crime, I don't really imagine all of this that it feels like I'm on an episode of Jerry Springer. It's, it is really something else. Everyone in town wants the hot goss about Joseph's lineage. And there's no, like, concern from the townspeople or even the police at this time. This father is engaging in sexual relationship with the daughter, aside from the year in jail. Aside from just, like, incest is a crime. They're like, that's wrong. We're gonna lock you up. Don't do it again. But if you do it again, we're gonna lock you up. Right. I always forget that incest was just, like, a a minor crime. It's so weird. So weird now through the 2020 lens of, like, she was clearly being victimized by her father. Yes. But they're like, this is consensual, you go into jail too. It's just such a different frame of reference. Thank God we've moved forward a little bit in the last 100 years. At least a little. Yeah. Winter 1921. Victoria has moved in with her parents after her husband died at war and brings the two kids with her. Maria has literally just moved in that day to replace the family's prior maid. She had quit because she felt that the farmhouse was haunted. She had started losing sleep because she was hearing loud thudding noises above her every night and footsteps and voices coming from the attic. Attic man. The return of attic man. She is desperately trying to convince the family that something's wrong because her fifth sense is tingling that somebody else is in the house But they completely dismiss her as a loon. She didn't need to be psychic to know there's fucking somebody up in that attic. Six months into her trying to convince them that something is wrong. Wait, she stayed there for six months thinking this was haunted? Yes. And she was getting haunted every night? Yes. I would have been out there, like, day three. I maybe would give it, like, two full days. And then third morning, I'm out. So she... Stays for six months. She tries to convince them. She is sleep deprived and drops a ton of weight. So literally six months of psychological torture. And then finally she breaks and she's like, I fucking quit. I gotta go. Right before Maria started, the family also started to hear these footsteps. Victoria had mentioned just very casually to someone in town. Oh, yeah, I'm hearing someone walk around the house at night. Just casual. Just totally offhandedly. Sure. Cecilia Jr. is struggling to stay awake at school during the daytime because she's also hearing noises at night that are keeping her awake. Andreas finds a newspaper on the property that nobody had purchased and the only set of house keys went missing. I told you it's an attic man. Yes. Anyone could put together at this point that there is a human being in the house. And why? But 
there's ignoring it. There's like, mm, oh well. None of this makes them leave the farmhouse. And instead, Andreas decides it's time to practice some classic toxic masculinity. He insists, I'm not afraid. You're afraid. I'm not afraid. And gathers up a bunch of guns. So Andreas's response to there's maybe a ghost is I'm going to strap up. Yeah, just shoot the ghost. That's totally how it works. Foolproof. They do it on Supernatural. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta go. Andreas starts to investigate further because the footsteps are still happening up in the attic all the time. But he can't find anyone in his searches of the property. He does find that their tool shed had been tampered with. There were scratches all over the lock and the lock had been damaged, but nothing was missing or stolen. And when he checked in with the neighbors, they hadn't had any issues. Andreas also told a neighbor shortly before the murders that he had found footprints outside in the snow leading directly up to the farmhouse but none leading away. These are all things that you would think you would go to the police for. Like you think, oh, you know, I'm hearing these things in my house. Someone physically messed with my shed. But no, he's just going to take care of it himself. Why would he call the cops? They're just going to get mad that he's raping his daughter. Where's the lie? Where- <laughs> Look, listen. March 31st, 1922, Maria Baumgartner moves in for her first day as the maid at Interkaifek. Everything is calm as the family eats a quiet dinner that Maria had made before they all go to bed. A few days later, neighbors and merchants realize that they have not seen the family as they usually would when they've been stopping by the farms to make deliveries or do other business with the family. This is very strange because... Everyone besides Victoria is home all of the time. A mechanic had come out to the farm to repair a piece of equipment, and when they were not able to find anyone, they broke the lock to the shed, repaired the equipment, and then fixed the lock and left. So you're just going to do your job. I mean, great work ethic. That customer service. Spot on. But you're just going to fix it and then fix the lock and then leave and not give any like heads up to anyone. Like, Hey, no one's home. Yeah. It's weird. Yep. None of the family attended mass that week, which was very strange because Victoria has a standing trip where she travels to church with two friends every week. And Cecilia Jr. was not in school on Saturday. Four days pass. And then people in the village start to become seriously concerned. There has been no activity on the farm, and nobody has seen them. They haven't seen, like, any signs that people are there. So people are starting to get a little bit concernicus. On the afternoon of April 4th, Lawrence Schlittenbauer asked two of his sons to go to Hinterkaifeck and check out the farm. Wait, I thought him and Victoria were done. They were. He was just a neighbor who was concerned. Just concerned, okay. Yeah, allegedly. He says, quote, I asked my two sons, Johan and Josef, to go to Hinterkaifeck Farm and knock on the windows and take a look and see if they could find anyone inside. I also told them to let the Grubers know that the mechanic had come by and fixed their engine. Shortly thereafter, my sons came back and said they had not seen anyone, although they heard something whining in the barn along with the cattle. Lawrence grabs two other neighbors, Jacob Siegel and Michael Pohl, and they head to Hinterkaifeck. They break down a door to the barn and find a few cows standing around inside. They start to look around, and suddenly they discover a dismembered foot. Okay. Just like in a haystack. In a nearby corner, they find the bodies of Andreas, Cezilla Sr., Victoria, and Cezilla Jr., stacked together and covered with hay. I 
Wasn't the mechanic in that shed? No. The tool shed is a separate... Got it. Okay. Separate okay. place. Because I assume since it's winter, they're not decomposing. So the smell, when people were coming on the property, they wouldn't have noticed. Correct. And they're in the barn. Okay. So not just like out where open air right. would carry the smell. The bodies were extremely disfigured, and there was clear blunt force trauma to the bodies, but mainly the heads. So really some aggression yeah. in, in the tendency of the murder. They also find the family dog, a little Pomeranian, tied up outside. The animals are all in great shape, considering that the family has been dead for days. And the cows even still have food in their trough. So someone has been taking care of the animals. My note says this means that the killer stayed in the house after the murders and for four days had been taking care of all the animals on the farm as well. So they were a real animal lover. But also in order to go take care of the cows in the stable, like, he has to go past those bodies every time. Oh, yeah. Inside the farmhouse, they find the remains of Joseph and Maria. Maria's backpack was still fully packed inside of her bedroom. She never even got to unpack any of her personal items at Hinterkaifeck. That's just so... It's just sad. So sad. Yeah. Most likely, the murders took place on March 31st. So shortly after making dinner, she went to bed and didn't have a chance to unpack. Munich police arrived to help the local police force, but they spend very little time at the crime scene and instead decide to assist remotely. So for most of the case, they're phone calling and telegraphing into the local police. Let's talk about how in like today's time, sure, in, ni- in the 1920s in Germany, there's not this technology. There's not this even like, re- like, yes, they can reprint things, but not. No, no. You can't do that no. from afar. A reward is offered for information to help solve the case. At first, they offer 100,000 marks. Eventually, this is raised to 500,000 marks. No information comes forward. All six of them have been brutally murdered with a pickaxe. There are details available online, even though there's no official autopsy file to speak of. They were really gruesome, and I didn't want to even repeat them. If you want to find them, you can look online. Just know that it was really brutal and awful. I think when you say, like, the murder weapon was a pickaxe, that tells you enough. Because in order... I feel like in order to kill someone with a pickaxe, like, that's just so much aggression. And you're gonna mutilate. Like, they had to be have been, like, fully mutilated. Like, to an unrecognizable level. Yeah. The cops start to further investigate the reports of Attic Man. Because neighbors had said that they had started to see small signs of life on the farm on April 1st. The cops also determined that while the cows had been fed, the dog had not. And this is most likely because the noise of the hungry cows would have been heard across the flatlands by the people in the village, and the dog barking would not. So it wasn't even like compassion for the animals. It was just part of the plot, in a sense, of like, I just need them to be quiet. They start to develop a list of suspects, who I'm going to go through real quick. Oh, boy. The first, Joseph Bartle had escaped a mental hospital and immediately was the first suspect, the second someone brought up his name. He has literally no connection to the case other than being known as mentally ill and at large. Was he in the area? The hospital was over 70 kilometers or 43 miles away. 
So they thought he could just walk 70 kilometers. It, it must be him. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Anton and Charles Bickler are next in the suspect list. They previously thought that there may have been a robbery element because none of the family members had money on them, but they later found money and gold throughout the property. When they were still working the robbery angle, they started looking really closely at Anton because he had had a fling with one of the previous maids at Hinterkaifeck, so he was familiar with the property. Both Anton and Charles have ironclad alibis, and the only circumstantial tie that they had was that they had publicly spoken about being jealous that the Grubers had money. What ironclad alibi could you have in the 1920s? They were at work, like, miles and miles away, together, with other people. For some reason, they also suspect Victoria's dead husband, Carl. What? Yes. One of the cops got their tinfoil hat out and said... Can we find out if that Carl guy actually died or not? So he writes a letter to the army and says, did he actually die in 1914? Or is there any chance he could have jumped on a prison transport bus and got back to Hinterkaifeck like the day before the murders? You know, I think that's the most likely. That's the most likely suspect so far. Sure. Fucking cops, man. So obviously there's literally no evidence to support that Carl either rose from the dead or faked his own death with the end objective of committing these murders. It's just a really convenient story that fits their narrative of, like, this crime of passion, and we could close the case quickly if we prove this dead guy actually was alive and did this. Lawrence Schlittenbauer is the most publicized suspect, and that's who most people have heard about when they learn things about this case. Lawrence's alibi is that he was with his wife on the night of the murder. A few things that made people suspicious of him... He lives nearby. He actually just lives on the other side of the woods behind the farm. Allegedly, he was planning to marry Victoria after their short sexual relationship and was just waiting for his first wife to die so that he could do so. Casual. And we all know what happened when Victoria actually did become pregnant. We know how that went down. Jacob, one of the men who went with Lawrence to Hinterkaifeck, found Lawrence's behavior very suspicious. And when interviewed by the police, he said, quote, Pohl and I immediately told Schlittenbauer when we found the bodies that he should be careful to leave things as they are. But he replied he had to see things for himself. He then told me to feed the cattle, but I told him that we were going home and reporting this to the police. He's just like, but, but feed the cattle first. Make sure, make sure they're okay. Jacob goes on to say, quote, Lawrence was very busy. He went straight to the cellar to fetch milk and feed the pigs. On the way home, Paul and I said nothing. It was very striking that Schlittenbauer changed everything that could have been changed. And he knew exactly where everything in the house was. In my opinion, Lawrence did not often go to Hinterkaifeck as Andreas wouldn't have allowed it. He had to have known where those things were before being like, oh, I need to feed the pigs. Oh, I need to do this. When Lawrence was questioned by the police about why he wasn't scared to go into the house after he found the bodies in the barn, he said, I was so worked up that I didn't think of anything. I assumed my boy had to be starving. Even if I wasn't completely sure that he was my child or not, I still felt compassion for him and I wanted to look after him at once. Wait. But isn't that child dad? Yes, he was. He's saying he thought that the boy, Joseph, was alive because he wasn't in the barn with everyone else. Gotcha. So that's why he wanted to go inside and check on him. That's why he wasn't afraid to go in the house. Sure. 
Lawrence was also observed spending a lot of time cleaning up at the crime scene. And after the murders, he even took two pigs back home to care for them. Not, not sus at all. No. Lawrence also was involved in the discovery of the murder weapon one year after the killings. Initially, the weapon was presumed to be a pickaxe that had been found in the barn that Lawrence had pointed out at the time. In February of 1923, the new owners of Hinterkaifeck were doing demolition on the property, and they found a mattock, which is a pickaxe, stashed in a hidden nook on one of the outer sheds of the property. Upon forensic inspection, it was found that there was human blood on it, and it was unquestionably the murder weapon even though police claimed that they had extensively searched the area. It has been suggested since that the murderer had placed it on the farm after the initial investigation was finished, thinking that it would be hidden forever and would never be found. In the final report on Lauren Schlittenbauer, the police wrote, Subsequent to interrogations, there were inconsistencies in his statements. However, he presented his answers in such a way that legitimate doubts about his guilt have to arise. So because he said it well, he obviously is to be trusted. Quote, he repeatedly declared his innocence in tears and declared that he was well aware he was a suspect, emphasizing that this was due to his energetic involvement as a local guide and his willingness to help. There are no indications for further action. He's too friendly. He's he's just the life of the party. He's so well-spoken. Like, there's no way it could be him. He cried. He was upset. Those were real tears. So they just said, well, we know it's not this guy, so we're done. Case closed. Pretty much. Cold case. It is solved to this day. Are there any mainstream theories about what happened? Lawrence is probably the most mainstream theory. Everybody has their own opinion. I'm like, it was clearly an attic man. So picture this. The mechanic may have done it. Oh, okay. He could fix the locks. What if he just did it and then went and did his job? I think it's weird. Okay. That he would just break into something to fix it and then leave. Your team mechanic. I, I think it's a valid theory that should have been looked into. Instead of just being like, no, nah, that's normal. I think that someone was living in the attic and got discovered. I don't know if it's any of these people. I think that somebody had been like full on living up there and got a little bit too comfy and then slipped and finally got caught by Andreas. And then he had to kill them. I mean, that makes sense. And I think back then no one thought about like attic people right like i feel like that's it has to be someone they knew not some random drifter right but i think like all of the footsteps people talking someone obviously was in there and not ghosts to be clear not ghosts because there was footprints and a newspaper and ghosts don't need no newspaper yeah i mean i guess i keep thinking about the way in which the murder was done it's an act of anger so usually that is more of a personal connection between a murderer and the victim and so it it makes me think that, yes, it's likely it could have been some random drifter in the attic, right? But for that kind of passion, in a sense, in a killing, it had to have been, like, someone that knew them. Unless the attic man was just like, I know this family so well. Well, that's why, that's why Lorenz is such a popular suspect. And that is the Hinterkaifeck farm murders. There is no further information in terms of who might be responsible. After we finished recording Hinter Kaifak, Jess wanted to do some side googs, and this is what she learned. 
And I do side Googs in between because of who I am as a person. So I went and just did a quick Goog. And this is one of the first things that pops up. It's from All That's Interesting. At some point after the murders, it doesn't specify when, the heads were actually removed from the bodies. So after the murders had been completed, at some point in the investigation, the bodies of the Grubers were sent for autopsies. Their heads were removed and sent to clairvoyance in Munich to unearth metaphysical clues. What the fuck? This is an interesting approach. Even in the 1920s, right? They were, what, like 43 miles from Munich. So they're just transporting these heads. I am not knocking clairvoyancy. I am knocking receiving a decapitated head in the mail to try to divinate from. That's too far for me. Right. And I part of me is like, why did they just decapitate the heads and not transfer the entire bodies? I guess I'm more confused if, did they request this service? Was this just the police being proactive? Like, oh, you probably need something to touch. Because in that case, send a finger. Uh, Sure. But I think of keeping the body intact, right? Like, at this point, it's very religious in the area. And in Christianity, you should, most people believe that you should be buried as a whole. But anyway, so the heads are sent to Munich. At some point after the clairvoyants were unsuccessful, the heads were lost. So they never got returned to their bodies. They don't know where they were. They don't know what happened to them. And they are claiming that because of World War II, this is, it got mishandled, I guess. FedEx lost it in the mail. I mean, that's what they've been doing all this time, so. I gotta go. And so the bodies were buried with no heads. They were buried in a cemetery headless. Which adds a whole other level, I feel like, to these murders in a sense of it wasn't just these brutal murders. Their bodies were mishandled after their death. Yeah. I, I like, I'm a little bit speechless, but I do have a question. Mm -hmm. How's your head? I gotta go. But I've never had any complaints. The next unsolved case that we're going to talk about is John Benet Ramsey, which you have told me you don't know much about. Right. So I know John Benet. I think it's something that most people have a vague knowledge of. I know her. I know a little bit about what happened, but I definitely don't know details of it. I just know that I've also driven by that house with you multiple times. Many a time. Yes. When we lived in Boulder, we were extremely close to the Ramsey house. And our knowledge of Boulder geography will probably come in handy as we talk about this case. For the JonBenet Ramsey research, I used Wikipedia, biography.com, and a website called statementanalysis.com. They have several pages on the JonBenet Ramsey murder, the interviews, the statements, the 911 call, and a lot of work done by Mark McClish that was absolutely amazing. John and Patsy Ramsey were very wealthy, and they lived a very luxurious life. Patsy was Miss West Virginia 1977, and John was an extremely John was an extremely successful businessman. Patsy graduated from high school in 1975. Patsy, Patsy attended West Virginia University, where she belonged to Alpha Chi Delta sorority, 
and she graduated with a bachelor's in journalism in 1978. She was 23 when she married John. In 1966, John graduated from Michigan State University with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. He went on to earn a master's degree in business administration from MSU as well in 1971. In 1989, Ramsey formed the Advanced Product Group, one of three companies that merged to become Access Graphics, which was a really big deal in like the early days of the internet in the 90s. John became president and chief executive officer of Access Graphics, which ended up being a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. So it was an early computer services company. In 1996, Access Graphics grossed over $1 billion, and Ramsey was named Entrepreneur of the Year by the Boulder Chamber of Commerce. That is accounting for inflation. Like, that's such an astronomical amount. Yes, the wealth. Patsy and John have two kids, nine-year-old Burke, born in 1987, and six-year-old John Benet, who was born in 1990. John Benet's name is a combination of both her parents' first names. Junior, junior. Yes. In 1991, they all moved to Boulder, Colorado. John Benet is entered into a wide variety of child pageants in Boulder and is very successful. She takes home the titles of America's Royale Little Miss, Little Miss Charlevoix, Little Miss Colorado, Colorado State All-Star Kids. It's cover girl and national tiny miss beauty. Wow. Yes. John Benet's active role in child beauty pageants and Patsy's alleged pageant mother behavior were very widely reported on. And this is what most people know or think of when they think about John Benet. They think of the pictures of her from her time in pageant. Which is what they used when it was being reported on the news. It was all the pageant photos. So right. she didn't even look like a small child. She looked like a pageant queen. Mm-hmm. Which is a different way to approach that, in my opinion. There's very few pictures of what John Bonet naturally looks like without makeup and without some of the pageant gear, the flippers, which is a fake t- fake dental tray. You get your teeth molded, and they make this perfect looking plastic bridge denture, and you put it in your mouth, and it makes your teeth look perfect. They're doing this for like five and six year old kids. Which hands? I- fake hair, lashes, fake nails. To be clear, I am a thousand percent on board with this and I love child pageantry if this is what your kid wants to do. Right. I feel like it... Throw some fake lashes on that baby. I'm here for it. I feel like, yes, but also a lot of parents, from what I know about the child pageant scene... It's almost, like, very pedophile Like, it's sexualizing children in yeah. a lot of their talents, in their costumes. Oh, I'm not saying that everybody who does this is good. Just to be clear, there is a lot of pieces of trash who do exactly what you're talking about. There's one episode of Toddlers and Tiaras where one of the little kids did a pretty woman routine as their talent routine. They were dressed up like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. That's, see, that's horrifying. Right. And a lot of people say that the media coverage of this case is what, push, is what pushed child pageantry further ahead to where we got to toddlers and tiaras. It's, it is known that Patsy bleached JonBenet's hair. Which, she was what, six? So she was five when she got her hair bleached. That's just... 
that's so much dedication to these pageants. Like, I feel like most of the time, it's the flippers, it's the wig, it's extensions. To fully bleach your child's hair for this is a little far. It's a bit much, Patsy. On December 26th, 1996, Patsy wakes up and finds a two and a half page handwritten ransom note on the staircase in the kitchen. I'm going to read the note verbatim. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represents a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier delivery pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory. S-B-T-C. S-B-T-C. Yep. That's how it's signed. Just the initials. S-B-T-C. So the whole letter reminds me of those scam emails saying, I have your granddaughter in this country. And I'm a Nigerian prince. Right. And it sounds like that from the get-go, being like, I'm from this other country. I don't like the country that you serve. And not that he wasn't a strong figure in terms of computer technology, but I don't think another country would be kidnapping his daughter just to get back at the United States. So you see issues with the note, is what you're saying. Just a little. Yeah. Just a teeny bit. You and everybody else. A lot of weird issues around the note, and a couple of my favorites are things that I would like to highlight. The money amount is very weird. $118,000, very weird specific number. We'll get into that in a little bit. Bring an adequate size attache. What in the white rich person bullshit? Right. Like, what? What? Do you know what an attache is? I had to goog. It's like like a a little briefcase. Yeah. A little suitcase. Yeah. The delivery will be exhausting. No, no. Drink some water before. (laughs) Stay hydrated. So it's just weird, right? That whole thing is weird. Let's go ahead and pause so that we can listen to the 911 call. 911 call reaction. 
I never want to downplay someone's call to 911 necessarily, but it just like, cutting off like that. And then the YouTube said it's suspected that she just hung up the phone. And that's what it sounds like. So the phone didn't get hung up initially, which is you can hear her saying, help me Jesus in yeah. the background. Most likely that she put the phone into the cradle, but it didn't push the button all the way down to hang up the phone. So if we have younger listeners on a house phone, there would be like a physical handset that the phone would go on and there's a button that you would press to hang up or switch to call waiting before there was a button for that on your home phone and that's what we mean that button to disconnect the call didn't fully get hit by the receiver didn't fully get pushed down there is a lot of analysis on this call specifically on that website that i mentioned statementanalysis.com it's been said by the 911 operator that she thought that she heard three voices in the background after patsy stepped away from the phone but that's never been proven concretely one way or another to go back to the note It had demanded $118,000. In 2019 money, that is $192,000. John told the first police officers to arrive on the scene that $118,000 is the exact amount of his Christmas bonus from the year before. Okay. It suggests that someone who had access to that information might be involved in the crime. Sure. Investigators looked at a lot of theories around this dollar amount, looking at employees at Access Graphics who might have known about John's bonuses. They also considered that there was a possibility that the ransom demand could reference Psalm 118. And they started looking at religious sources to try to figure out if there could be a connection. The other thing that's very odd is that the ransom note is very unusually long. Three pages is very, very long. The police believed that the note was staged because there was no fingerprints on it besides Patsy's and the police who later handled it. The note and a practice draft of the note had been written on a notepad with a pen from the Ramsey home. Wait, there's a practice note? There was a practice note. At the scene? Yes. Someone who has done a kidnapping and is doing a ransom note isn't going to write a practice note. Or wouldn't you bring the note? Bring the note. You're not going to write it while you're there, especially a three-page note. Right. That you fucked up the first time and you have to rewrite. Draft two. No. Especially if you're doing that, you're going to cross it out and keep writing. You're not going to take the time. According to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, there were indications that Patsy was the author of the ransom note. But all of the evidence fell short of being definitive. So they can't say for sure. Michael Baden, a board-certified forensic pathologist who had consulted on both sides of the case, said that he had never seen a note like this in his 60 years of experience. And he did not think that it had been written by a stranger. Anyone could really tell you that, but I'm proud of him for saying that in court, I guess. A federal court ruled it very unlikely that Patsy wrote the note, according Mm. to six certified handwriting experts. The court also bemoaned the existence of self-proclaimed experts, people without credentials, trying to wrangle their way onto the case, accusing Patsy without any evidentiary basis. So this was a very public case then. This was extremely public. I remember this case in the news when I was a little girl. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about, like, the details of that, though. In order for all these people to be coming forward, like, without their credentials, all those details have to be out. This case was extremely mishandled. I see. So, Boulder Police, looking at you, we know you're the worst from we had to work with you, but 
Confirmed, you are the worst. The only people who were known to be in the house on the night that JonBenet died were her immediate family, Patsy, John, and her brother, Burke. The ransom note did contain specific instructions against contacting police and friends, but Patsy called the police anyway. She also called family and friends. Two police officers responded to the 911 call. They arrived at the Ramsey home within three minutes. They conducted a cursory search of the house, but found no signs of forced entry. One officer, Rick French, went to the basement and found a door that was secured by a wooden latch. He paused for a minute in front of the door and then walked away without opening it. He later explained that he was looking for an exit route that could have been used by the kidnapper, which this inside door that had been closed with a peg ruled out. With JonBenet still missing, John begins making arrangements to pay the ransom, and a forensics team is dispatched to the house. The team initially believes that JonBenet has been kidnapped, and so her bedroom is the only room in the house that they cordon off to prevent contamination of evidence. But I have questions about this door, though. Like, this officer really just, you know, there's this creepy wooden door that's locked. I'm just going to ignore it. So he later says that he could tell from the latch on the door that it was the wrong direction for someone to have been able to exit the house from. So in his brain, he's like, oh, that's not even an option. What's the point? But for me, if you were looking through an entire house for clues or different artifacts or like anything, you're going to look around the entire house and in closets. You would think. No precautions are taken to prevent contamination of any evidence in the rest of the house. Meanwhile... Friends, victim advocates, and even the Ramsey family minister arrive at the home to show support. Visitors start picking up and cleaning surfaces in the kitchen, potentially destroying evidence. According to the police report, several more policemen arrive and start to assist Rick French. About 8, 10 a.m., Linda Arndt arrives. Art's supervisor was Detective Sergeant Larry Mason, and he also gets to the crime scene later that day. Mm -hmm. The first group of people on the scene just kind of assume that this is a very straightforward situation and that Patsy and John are victims. They do not begin investigating them the way that this would be investigated now. Right. Also because of how white and rich they are. You know, those two things get you... Far. It really will, huh? Far enough that they call in two victim advocates to uh, work with John and Patsy. Wh- okay. One of the biggest critiques about the case is that Linda Arndt was heavily criticized by her co-workers because she built a bond with Patsy that was viewed as overly close. That's not your job. So as you can imagine, there are some questions about her judgment and actions in this case. Yeah. Linda Arndt basically decides that she's just got to wait for the ransom call to come in. That's what everyone's expecting, right? That's all you have to do is just sit there and wait for that call. By 1 p.m., no call comes. And John Ramsey and Fleet White are just kind of standing around again just john is like calm cool and collected fleet significantly more frazzled linda pulls them into the kitchen and says i need you to do a favor for me and i need you to look all over the house okay so she says 
quote, I want you to search the house top to bottom. Another investigator who was present said the sentence wasn't even done. John Ramsey was running down to the basement. Top to bottom. Start at the bottom. Right. Fleet White later said that John Ramsey went directly to a broken window on the side of the house and kind of paused. Fleet White said, hey, look at this. And John says, oh, yeah, I broke that like last summer. I just never got it fixed. Yes, I guess you do. Then the theory is later, maybe John wanted to set up that someone could have gotten in there. But investigators quickly determine it would have to be a child or a very petite human to be able to get through. Right. It's just too small. While Flea is still looking at the window, John Ramsey is bebopping around, searching the basement. He goes right down the hallway where John Bonet's body is found. There's a lot of rooms and corridors in this basement, apparently, and John goes right to the one where John Bonet's body is. A garrote made of white cord and a broken artist paintbrush handle was around her throat, and there was another cord around her right wrist. Her body was covered in a white blanket that came from her bed, and nearby was a red pageant nightgown. It was described it was described by a relative in the media as her favorite possession. Okay. According to the police investigators, John Ramsey yanked the tape from her mouth and, quote, holding her with both hands around her waist the way you would a doll, carried her upstairs and laid her on the hardwood floor in the living room. So why is your first reaction to be like, I'm just going to rip this off and take her upstairs. I'll just carry her up. That's not a normal response. A source quoted in the Vanity Fair article says, what was interesting was when Ramsey brought the body upstairs, he never cried. So you're finding out that your daughter is dead. And there are a lot of different reactions to grief, right? Like some people, crying isn't the thing, but it feels like he was very nonchalant about it. Right. They have now in recent years said everybody reacts to shock differently that's not really something that you can hold everybody to the same measure. But when he got upstairs, he allegedly started to moan and peek around the room to see if anybody was watching him. So basically, he's like faking his reaction and seeing if anyone's like paying attention and catching on. According to these unnamed sources. Sure. Yes. Linda Arndt picks John Bonet up and moves her body next to the Christmas tree. So someone who is trained to not move a body moves the body. Yes. Okay. Patsy collapses on top of John Benet and is screaming, Jesus, you raised Lazarus from the dead. Please raise my baby. Excuse me? Yes. Okay. So calling for a resurrection. Linda Arndt then asks the minister who came to gather everyone around John Bonet's body and lead them in a prayer circle. Excuse me again? Yes. So it's time, not- time and place. Read the room. 
But also it is an active crime scene. And this is the time where you want to kick everyone out and even the family. Because in a lot of these cases, you don't want them to be seeing this graphic horror. Yes. And you should try to be protecting them in a sense. Like that is the job of these officers responding to this. Linda Arndt calls a code black over the radio, which is police lingo for a murder. And the forensics team comes back to the house. But by then, the room in the basement and John Bonnet's body were completely contaminated. The minute that John Bonnet's body was moved, they compromised whatever evidence might have been left on it or around it. It's reported a lot that John had tried to keep officers away from this room in the basement. While there's not anything in the police reports that would confirm that, the police let the media fly with their suspicions of the Ramses. They really didn't do much to challenge any of the negative press that the Ramses were getting. I will say when she was found in a room that was locked from the inside, it it's super suspicious. So what are the cops going to say necessarily? Right. Another piece of evidence that was reported in a misleading way, police had said they found no signs of forced entry. And then obviously people are saying, oh, it couldn't have been an outsider. It had to be someone inside the house. But actually, police had found several windows and a door had been unlocked that night. During all of this back and forth in the early stages of the investigation, at some point, the White family has a falling out with the Ramses, And they really just don't feel good about how the Ramses are acting. They begin to speak out critically about the Ramses in the media. Ooh. Yes. December 27th, Linda Arndt approaches the Ramses to request a formal interview and is immediately informed that they've retained legal counsel. Yeah, that's really the first step when you're this victim. Yeah. Well, when you're rich, you're always the victim. January 1st, 1997, John and Patsy are interviewed on CNN. The interview is about 45 minutes long, and they are still in Atlanta. They're just staying in Atlanta. The Boulder police at the time had been telling people in Boulder, there's nothing to worry about. Your kids are safe. It, we're going to figure this out. It's a one-off. And in fact, it was the only murder in Boulder in 1996. Just a one-off. A one right. Okay. Patsy, in the interview, says, quote, There is a killer on the loose. If I were a resident of Boulder, I would tell my friends to keep, keep your babies close to you. There's someone out there. Oh. She also says, America is suffering because they have lost faith in the American family. And brings up OJ Simpson. Excuse what? Like, <laughs> let's bring up OJ as a means of. Yo, you got to tie in the juice. Come on. She also says, quote, we are a Christian, God-fearing family. We love our children. We would do anything for our children. January 2nd, 1997, five detectors from Boulder decide to fly to Atlanta. Because they're really taken aback that the Ramses can be on CNN, but they're too emotional to talk with the police. Right. Seems like Patsy was like, ooh, the limelight. Reliving those pageant glory days. She's really living her dream. 
So, on January 3rd, detectives reveal that the ransom note had been written inside the house, and John and Patsy return to Boulder. Boulder police also go to Michigan and search a summer home that the Ramseys own. January 6, 1997, John Benet's school reopens and classes start again, and they provide counselors for the children, and teachers are kind of there to give extra support. Sure. On January 8th, it becomes public that there was the practice ransom note, and things are just really looking real bad for the Ramses at, like, every turn. This is also in the beginning stages of the 24-hour news cycle that has developed in American media. Right. Where it's on all the time and it's on all the stations. So it's getting a lot of press play on CNN. And I've talked about on the show with guests, she is, quote, a good victim, unquote, in that she is a young, blonde, beautiful girl and has been in all these pageants, and there's all these things to sensationalize about her death. Right. In February 1997, they questioned John Bonnet's half-brother, one of John Ramsey's children from a prior marriage. They interview... They interview John Andrew, John Bonnet's half-brother, John's son from a prior marriage, even though he was not in town when the murder happened. March 7th, 1997, handwriting analysis eliminates John, but not Patsy. So they leave it open-ended in the media. Detectives decide to only disclose, hey, John didn't write it, but there's a chance that it could have been Patsy. Original clickbait, huh? Yes. March 8th, 1997, police search the Michigan home again, looking for unrehearsed handwriting samples. Because they're very suspicious that it was Patsy who wrote the note. Right. April 3rd, 1997, more DNA testing takes place. This one in Maryland instead of the Colorado Bureau of Investigation who ran the first DNA kits. Mm-hmm. On April 19th, 1997, John Bonet. On April 19th, 1997, John and Patsy officially become the prime suspects of the investigation. April 30th, 1997, Patsy is questioned for six and a half hours. So, quote, formal interviews occur at this point. John is interviewed for two hours. Patsy, six and a half. Are these their first formal interviews? So it's the first formal interview. Okay. They have previously given statements on the day of the murder, the day that John Bonnet's body was discovered. I'm asking because this is almost four months later. Yes. Also, the first, we'll call it the informal statement for clarity. Mm -hmm. The first time that they make a statement, John and Patsy are interviewed together. Yeah. Why would we want to split them up and verify their story? You know, this is really just prime police work at its finest. Yep. Boulder PD. Again. Okay. Okay. May 2nd, 1997, John and Patsy start giving interviews to the local press in Boulder and in the Denver metro area. Sure. In these interviews, John stumbles over John Benet's name and addresses rumors of her possibly being sexually assaulted, saying that those are the most hurtful innuendos to him. Patsy says, I'm appalled that anyone would think John or I would be involved with such a hideous and heinous crime. 
But let me assure you, I did not kill John Bonet. That's such an awkward way of phrasing that. A lot of the interviews, the communication, the way that they explain things have been really called into question and analyzed by people. And another thing that a lot of people say is that based on Patsy's behavior, there's a lot of suspicion that she may have been intoxicated in some of these interviews. Okay. Based on her speech, her mannerisms. I remember a good bit of coverage about had maybe was Patsy taking prescription medications. I don't know what is true, but I do know that at the very least in those interviews, she's displaying signs of shock. Sure. Minimally, I feel like I have a safe leg to stand on to say that. It's very erratic. There's some slurred speech. There's sometimes she seems really out of it. There's a lot of footage of these interviews because they talked way more to the media than the police. You know, that is what rich white people do. Yeah. Yeah. Boulder, Colorado. July 12th, 1997, JonBenet's bedroom furniture is moved to Atlanta, and they actually take all of her belongings to Atlanta eventually. Why? The Ramses, I think, really wanted to escape Boulder and just try to get away from the investigation. Whether or not that's an indicator of guilt, choose your own adventure. So I get the wanting to get away from Boulder. I do not understand moving all of JonBenet's furniture to Atlanta, where did they even have a house there at this point? They did. Okay. They had been staying with friends, and then eventually they got their own place. Even so, I think it's very odd. July 14th, 1997, the previously sealed autopsy results are released. And they confirm a deep ligature around the victim's neck and another around the right wrist from the cords. So that is evidence she was bound and strangled. They also say that blood and abrasions were found in John Bonet's vaginal area and that she was struck on the head violently enough to cause bleeding and an 8.5 inch fracture to her skull, Oof. which is very large. Yeah. And the thing is, like, if she's bleeding from if there is blood from that, that is pre-mortem, right? Like. If it was postmortem, there wouldn't be necessarily, like, all the blood, and it wouldn't be as... Like, that would have been noted in the autopsy. Correct. January 15th, 1998, the Ramses decline to give any further interviews to the police unless they have the opportunity to review evidence. Yes. So I'm only going to talk to you, but I need to review your evidence first. I got to know what you got. What do you got on me? Gosh. The cops reject this request. (laughs) Just say, no thanks. The first gold star for the police. Right? Good job. One of ten. January 29th, 1998, John and Patsy give the police the clothing they were wearing the night of the crime. So it's a sweater, a pair of pants, and two shirts. How long is this after? This is January 29th, 1998. So, so a year later, I guarantee they've, they've washed those clothes. So this is two months after the police initially asked them for their clothing. Okay. March 12, 1998, they call for a grand jury investigation 
because it's been about 15 months since the murder. June 3rd, 1998, they continue to investigate evidence that they've removed from the home. They actually took over a thousand pieces of evidence from the Ramsey home. Wow. No further details are shared other than we're continuing to investigate. Okay. June 10th through the 12th, 1998, John Bonet's brother Burke is questioned. He was nine at the time of the crime. He's the only other person known to be in the house besides John and Patsy. And he is 11 now by the time they're questioning him. Wow. Also around this time, Detective Steve Thomas writes an eight-page resignation letter. Oh. He is extremely critical of the DA's office and says that he believes elements of the case were thoroughly compromised. I agree with him. Eventually, Governor Roy Romer starts looking more closely at why the investigation isn't going anywhere. And he eventually steps in to put more pressure on. Sure. August 19th, 1998, Fleet White officially requests to have somebody other than District Attorney Hunter assigned to the JonBenet Ramsey case. A homicide. A garrote had been made from a length of nylon cord and the broken handle of a paintbrush that was tied around her neck and used to strangle her. Part of the paintbrush was found in a tub of Patsy's art supplies, but they never found the third part despite extensive searching of the house by the police. That's so suspicious. Not just because, like, that third part wasn't found. It was something that was packed away. Someone breaking in isn't just going to be like, let me go through this art box to try to find something. Like, typically, they're bringing something with them. The autopsy also reveals a vegetable or fruit material, most possibly pineapple, that John Bonet had eaten a few hours before her death. Photographs of the Ramsey home taken on the day when John Bonet's body was found show a bowl of pineapple on the kitchen table with a spoon in it. However, neither John nor Patsy said they remember putting the bowl on the table or feeding pineapple to John Bonet. That's strange. Police report that they found John Bonet's nine-year-old brother Burke's fingerprints on the bowl, and the Ramseys have always maintained that Burke slept through the entire night until he was awakened several hours after police arrived. A lot of errors were made in this initial investigation, and this complicates any applicable theories or evidence that might have existed, or things that were technically done wrong and now can't be admitted into evidence. There was also a lot of evidence shared with the Ramses. In December 2003, forensic investigators extract enough material from a mixed blood sample that had been found on JonBenet's underwear, and they establish a DNA profile. This DNA belongs to an unknown male person and excludes the DNA of everyone in the Ramsey family. If it's not one of them, it can't be just one of them. Yes. With the DNA. The DNA was submitted to CODIS, the FBI's combined DNA index system. It's a database that contains more than 1.6 million DNA profiles, but the sample did not match any profile in the database. In October 2016, a report said that new forensic analysis with more sensitive techniques revealed that the original DNA contained genetic markers from two individuals other than JonBenet. 
A. James Kolar, who is a lead investigator for the Boulder DA's office, said that there were additional traces of male DNA found on the cord and paintbrush that Boulder District Attorney Mary Lacey had not mentioned. Also, the Ramseys are extremely wealthy. So they are in a different level in Boulder where the cops are really treating them with kid gloves and giving them a lot of deference and respect because they're so fucking rich. Correct. They live on 15th Street. And in order to live in Boulder, like Boulder proper, you have to have a lot of money. And they're up by Chautauqua, the mountains in Boulder. The closer you get to Chautauqua, the more expensive those houses are. 15th Street, pretty close. That's one of the more expensive areas in Boulder. Lou Smith was a detective who was retired and came out of retirement to help in 1997 to assist the Boulder County District Attorney's Office. And in May 1998, he presented his findings to the Boulder Police and other staff members of the DA's office, concluding that all of the evidence pointed away from the Ramseys. They were unable to successfully challenge the police department's belief that the Ramseys were guilty. So even though they went through step-by-step and said all of this evidence shows it is not the Ramseys, Boulder cops were like, it's the fucking Ramseys. The DA's office decided to try to take control of the investigation. And there was a lot of animosity between the police and the DA's office. Add to that a ton of pressure to obtain a conviction. And the governor of Colorado, Roy Romer at the time, interceded and named Michael Kane as a special prosecutor to initiate a grand jury. The two lead investigators in the case had entirely opposing views. Both Lou Smith and Steve Thomas ultimately resign. Smith because he believes that the investigation was incompetent and had overlooked the hypothesis that an intruder likely could have committed the murder. And Thomas because the DA's office had interfered with and failed to support the police investigation of the case. The DAs were definitely treating the Ramseys with a lot more respect than they would give to a a person without wealth and means and respect in the community. So the cops had a lot of feelings about that. Mary Lacey was the next Boulder County DA, and she took over the investigation from the police on December 26, 2002. In April 2003, she agreed with a federal judge who sat on a 2002 libel case that the evidence in the suit is more consistent with a theory that an intruder murdered John Bonet than it was with a theory that Mrs. Ramsey did. On July 9th, 2008, the Boulder District Attorney's Office announced that as a result of newly developed DNA sampling and testing techniques, the Ramsey members were officially excluded. So Mary Lacey publicly exonerated the Ramseys in 2008. Okay. February 2nd, 2009, Boulder Police Chief Mark Beckner announces that Stan Garnett, the new Boulder County DA, was turning the case back over to the Boulder Police and that the Boulder Police would resume investigating the case. How many DAs were actually involved in this investigation? Because I know it's over a long period of time, but this is really quick turnover. We're at at least three in the last 10 years. So they just cold cased it. Pretty much. Okay. In October 2010, the Boulder police officially reopened the cold case. New interviews are conducted following a fresh inquiry by a committee that includes state and federal investigators, and police were expected to use the latest in DNA technology in their investigation. In 2015, 
Beckner disagrees with exonerating the Ramses, stating, Exonerating anyone based on a small piece of evidence that has not yet been proven to even be connected to the crime is absurd. He says that the unknown DNA from JonBenet's clothing has to be the focus of the investigation. In 2016, Gordon Coombs, a former investigator for the Boulder County DA's office, also questioned the total absolution of the Ramses, stating, We all shed DNA all the time within our skin cells. It can be deposited at any time for various reasons, reasons that are totally benign. To clear somebody just on the premise of touch DNA, especially where you have a situation where the crime scene wasn't secured right from the beginning, is really a stretch. Stephen Pitt, a forensic psychiatrist who had been hired by the Boulder authorities, said, Mary Lacey's public exoneration of the Ramses was a huge slap in the face to Chief Beckner and the core group of detectives who had been working on this case for years. In 1999, a grand jury was convened, and they voted to indict John and Patsy Ramsey. The indictment cited two counts each of child abuse and said that the parents did unlawfully, un- did unlawfully, knowingly, recklessly, and feloniously permit a child to be unreasonably placed in a situation that posed a threat of injury to the child's life or health, which resulted in the death of John Benet Ramsey, a child under the age of 16. So, if it was voted to indict, why didn't that happen? Because on October 13th, 1999, Alex Hunter, the DA at the time, refused to sign the indictment, saying that the evidence was insufficient for prosecution. The public believed that the grand jury investigation had been inconclusive, And in 2002, the statute of limitations on the grand jury's indictment charges expired. It wasn't until October 25th, 2013, when previously sealed court documents were released, that the grand jury's vote to indict was revealed. So he's like, I'm not going to sign it, but I'm going to lie about it and just say there's not there's not enough evidence. The jury never did that. Yeah. But then it's, of course, like unsealed after a certain time period. And this is the same person that Fleet White was like, we got to get this guy out of here. Fleet White was right. Fleet White, you knew it. On August 20th, 1998, Burke's voice is allegedly heard in the background of the 911 call after it's been enhanced. What? And previously, the Ramses had said Burke was completely asleep. The whole time that his sister was missing and didn't wake up until after police started to arrive at the house. Right. September 15th, 1998, the grand jury begins their investigation, even though they have been selected five months prior. So the length of this is really just dragging and dragging and dragging. The length is unbelievable. Right. September 24th, 1998, another detective quits the case. This time it's Lou Smith. He says in his resignation letter that a very dangerous killer is still out there. This gives the Ramseys leverage, and they are able to convince the police to start looking at other suspects. October 13th, 1998, the grand jury starts hearing forensic evidence, specifically the DNA evidence and fiber evidence that was collected from the Ramsey home. Mm -hmm. They also go on a physical tour of the house They go on a physical tour of the Ramsey house nine days later. December 3rd, 1998, more DNA evidence is collected from the Ramsey family. 
even though police are saying that they're not suspects, on January 28th, 1999, investigators start to appeal to the online community of armchair detectives, randos on the internet, (laughs) people like me. Yeah. To try to find information about a Santa Claus teddy bear that had been found in JonBenet's bedroom. Specifically, they want to find who manufactured the teddy bear and where it was sold so they can hopefully try to make more connections somehow. That seems just like a very specific odd request for like a teddy bear. Seems like a bit of a red herring to me. Like, why is this teddy bear important? There's, we haven't heard anything about the teddy bear in relation to the murder. It's just weird. Like, I could understand if someone left it there and it wasn't originally hers. Right. But this seems very off. Right. March 18th, 1999, Linda Arndt resigns. She's sick of all the criticism and heat that she's getting about her role in the case. Just just a dainty flower. Yes. Can't handle the criticism. Yes. May 19th, 1999, 12-year-old Burke is secretly questioned by the grand jury. Secretly. They don't release it to the media. They keep everything sealed because he is a juvenile. Got it. He is officially declared a witness only. So he is officially cleared as a suspect at this time. Sure. September 13th, 1999, Linda Arndt goes on Good Morning America and says, I know who the killer is, but I'm not going to tell you. No. Yes. She's like, I'm going to shoot my shot. Linda Arndt, what the fuck are you doing on Good Morning America? If you know who the killer is, you need to fucking go back to the Boulder Police Office and make some shit happen. Wait, did she, did she write a book? Oh, I don't know. Was this promotion for a book? But you know what's coming up. March 17th, 2000, the Ramses publish a book. So 2000 in March, that's a little over three years after... Your daughter's murder, who, which has not been solved. Yes. And so before this, the DA had come out, like shortly before this, the DA had come out and said, there's no sufficient evidence to charge anyone. We're kind of at a standstill, basically. You know who else wrote a book after a murder that also was mentioned by Patsy? The Juice. The Juice. O.J. Simpson. So the book they release is called The Death of Innocence. It is about John Bonet's murder. And they also do a publicity press tour no. to promote the book. No. Yes. Yeah. May 24th of 2000, John and Patsy hold a press conference. And they publicly announce that polygraph exams have determined that they are innocent. But... The polygraph exams were not run by the FBI, and the investigators don't find them acceptable. Correct. Like, there's a reason polygraph exams are inadmissible in court as evidence, because they are notoriously unreliable. Correct. My ex-boyfriend was very well-versed in, like, spyware and spycraft. I don't know really how to put it. He was, like, really into that James Bond bullshit. (laughs) He would talk at length about how there are ways to beat a polygraph exam 
And it has to do with regulating your central nervous system. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. He he was right. There's very few things he's right about, (laughs) but that one is correct. On June 24th, 2006, Patsy dies of cancer. She is 49. She had been diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer in 1993. Okay. So at the time of Patsy's death, there are no answers about what happened to John Bonet. Did she leave like a last testament? Anything? Nope. Okay. June 29, 2006, Patsy is buried next to John Bonet in Marietta, Georgia. And on September 12th of 2016, Burke is interviewed by Dr. Phil. What? Yes. Burke says twice in the interview that he believes that it was a pedophile from the pageant scene. Sure. That long pause, though. I Going on Dr. Phil, being like, it was this pedophile from the pageant scene. Don't get me wrong. Pageant scene is full of pedophiles, right? It's like a known magnet for kid diddlers. Right. Which, so he's not wrong that that exists, but I don't know that that fits the profile of what happened. Yeah. I mean, honestly, watch Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Frank's Little Beauties. You'll get my reference that I just made, and you'll know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Do not diddle kids, no good diddling kids. Gotta be older than my daughter, younger than my wife, something like that. It's a great musical number, really. (laughs) So let's talk about some physical evidence. December 2003, the forensic investigators do get enough DNA from JonBenet's underwear to establish a profile. This DNA belongs to an unknown male person and excludes the entire Ramsey family. Okay. The DNA is submitted to CODIS, which is a DNA database that has over one and a half million DNA profiles, Mm -hmm. but no profiles in the system match the sample. In October 2016, new forensic analysis that has more sensitive techniques reveals that the original DNA had genetic markers from two other individuals. Okay. So in theory, there are two perpetrators. In theory, right? According to this evidence. One of the lead investigators for the DA's office, one of the many, had said that there were additional traces of male DNA found on the cord and the paintbrush that the DA at the time, Mary Lacey, did not mention and that there were actually six separate DNA samples belonging to unknown individuals. So I want to go back to the fact that the entire crime scene was tampered with by people trying to clean, and their DNA is getting all over everything. This entire investigation was compromised pretty much from the opening moments. You know what I'm saying? Like, every step of the way, they're like, should we fuck it up? Or no, go with fuck it up. You know those arrow trains? It's like a box and then the arrow in two directions. Choose your own adventure. It's like, should we investigate this properly? Yes, no. No every time. No all the way to like, fuck this case so it can't be unfucked. Right. But they're saying like, oh, there's there could be six perpetrators. I bet you a bunch of that DNA is from people who were just in the house. How about that prayer circle? Right. Like you are constantly shedding DNA in terms of dead skin cells and micro touching things that you might not even realize 
you are leaving your DNA every place that you go. Right. Yeah. Former FBI profiler Candace DeLong, one of my favorite people of all time, believes that the DNA, because it had shown up in several different places on different surfaces, belongs to the killer. So she's team, it wasn't the Ramseys, this was some type of intruder, and one person. Okay. Former Adams County DA Bob Grant, who assisted the Boulder DA's office for many years with the case, also said that the DNA evidence is very significant because any resolution of the case has to explain how the DNA showed up on all these different pieces of John Bonet's clothing. Sure. However, a forensic a forensic pathologist said trace amounts of DNA can get on places in clothing from all kinds of non-suspicious means. And so there's no forensic evidence that to him would indicate that this was a stranger murder. Right. Sorry. So in the DNA evidence, was it just kind of like in passing DNA evidence or was it like blood? Was it semen? A lot of the DNA evidence that they're talking about is what's called touch DNA, which is extremely transferable. Right. Like I think... That literally could come from anywhere. Yes. So it's pretty obvious why this case is still unsolved in terms of all the evidence and all the things. But we'll talk about some of the investigation pieces that also got bungled besides just the physical DNA evidence. Obviously, Boulder police and the media focused, laser focused on John and Patsy as the people who are responsible for John Bonet's death. But by October 1997, they had over 1,600 people listed as persons of interest in the case. That's just a lot. It's too much to be able to look at each person critically when you have a police force like Boulder has. Well, it's not, it, well, it's not a major city, right? Like, even though Boulder likes to think of itself as a city, it's, it's not. Right. And so you don't have that police force that can really like investigate that many people, let alone interview that many people, let alone like, collect any evidence. And this is the only murder in 1996. They don't have a lot of murders happening in Boulder. They don't have like these skilled investigators who know exactly what they're doing. Right. And as a result, a ton of errors that were made in the early stages of the investigation make it near impossible for there to be a resolution to this case. Well, even if they had a suspect, like a true suspect that was being charged and going to court, none of this evidence is admissible. Correct. They did not have staff who knew what they were doing. The experience and the training wasn't there. They shared evidence with the Ramses, like step by step in the early stages before the Ramses lawyered up and things got serious. And they had these super delayed interviews with the parents. Let's talk about theories and suspects. The main theory is the family member theory. According to Greg McCrary, who is a retired profiler with the FBI, statistically, it is a 12 to 1 probability that it's a family member or caregiver who is involved when the who is involved in the homicide of a child. Mm-hmm. It's pretty well documented that the police saw no evidence of forced entry, but there was evidence of staging, and they did not believe the Ramses were cooperative 
in helping their attempts to solve Jambadee's murder. I also think a part of that is there's there's this practice ransom note, this ransom note that obviously was not a true kidnapping because the body was found in the house. Right. So one theory is that Patsy became very upset because John Bonet had wet the bed. John Bonet was a known bedwetter. Became so enraged that she strangled John Bonet after hitting her because she thought John Bonet was dead. So in some attempt to cover up, she decided to put the garrote and hang her deceased daughter's body. This one's not it for me. No. No, it doesn't really add up. Patsy never had a history of anger or outbursts. Doesn't sound like physical discipline happened in the house. Right. A few of the family members said there was not even spanking, like nothing like that. So I find it hard to believe Patsy would go from nothing to I'm going to hit you hard enough to put an 8.5 inch fracture in your head. Right. And then go through the, oh, well, you're not quite dead. So let me strangle you. Or the alternative of let me make it look like this was something else. I think there's other ways that that could have happened if that was the case. Yeah. This one's not it for me. What say you? No. No. Right? No. I have something when we get to the intruder theory that I have to add in. Yeah. Some people who believe this theory think, oh, it's like a red herring to cover up other aspects of the assault because of the physical evidence and their assumptions about JonBenet and being sexually assaulted in the course of her death. Right. Burke is also a suspect, as you recall, until eventually he is declared as not a suspect. He was nine years old when JonBenet died. And he was interviewed at least three times in the period of time after John Bonet's death. Mm-hmm. The first two times, they didn't really raise any concerns about his behavior or his responses. There wasn't anything they felt like was off. A child psychologist did a review and found that the Ramses had like a healthy, caring home and that they had good family relationships. And eventually they do clear Burke. The Burke theory is that some kind of accident happened and maybe they were roughhousing or maybe there was some kind of fall, something. And Patsy and John decided to cover it up Mm -hmm. instead of being straightforward about what happened. So especially as you've been describing things, I think that could be kind of what happened i think the fracture did like she fall down the stair hit her head did she like hit her head on like a coffee table i think there's those options because then the ransom note makes sense because it obviously in my opinion was written by patsy someone coming in isn't going to do a practice note and leave it there you're going to write it beforehand and so i think To me, this seems like it could be an option. Yeah. This is a theory that I personally was very into for a very long time until recently because I'm in a lot of the Denver murderino groups and a few people post in there about the case from time to time. There was somebody who knows the family and went to high school with Burke 
Mm-hmm. And they talked about him being very fucking normal. And, like, they, you know, they thought it was a really nice guy. That and some of the stuff that happens later with Burke and the media and coverage of the case. It makes me think that he wasn't involved because at this point, why wouldn't you have owned up to it. Patsy has passed away. Weird, fun side note about John. He later went on to date the mother of Natalie Holloway. Did they meet at like a support group? I have no idea how they met. I just know that they dated. Okay. I guess with Burke, for me, it's, you had also said earlier when the 911 call was enhanced, he was hurt in the background. Allegedly. Okay. Allegedly. Yeah. That's never really been conclusively proven one way or another. Sure. I have my own theory that we'll get to. Like my updated theory. (laughs) My 2021 theory. In September 2016, CBS broadcasts a show called The Case of John Benet Ramsey. They use a group of experts to evaluate the evidence. This is pretty popular on Oxygen and a bunch of these channels. They get a group of somewhat known or well, well-known people in the field, they all come together and they wildly theorize about what's happened. Right. Especially popular with cases like this, where everything was fucked like Poppers and Crisco from day one. This group theorized that Burke hit his sister in the head with a heavy object, possibly a flashlight, after she stole a piece of pineapple from his bowl, perhaps not even intending to kill her. They suggest the ransom letter is a cover-up, so this popular theory. On behalf of Burke Ramsey, lawyers filed defamation lawsuits against CBS, the producers, and several of the participants. Because they're basically coming out and saying, Burke Ramsey absolutely did this. Right. Which, by the way, if he is innocent, this is fucking horrible for him. Right. Like, your whole life has been dogged by this. Like, he can't really live, like, his own true life, if that makes sense. Right. If you're innocent, I feel bad for you. If you're not... Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) But, okay. So, those are the theories around the family. Either it was Burke and it was a cover-up, or it was the parents and it was a cover-up. I think there's just so many things, and particularly John Ramsey going straight to that door... Like, he knew where she was. The ransom letter. All these different factors. I think there's no way that the family was not somewhat involved. I think it could play into the addition of a stranger theory. So maybe it was someone they may have known who did this and then they still tried to cover it up. Because of some either relationship or maybe a monetary engagement based on someone John worked with. That's going off a little. But I do think with the sexual abuse, there's that component that I think never in any of these theories is never really discussed that we've talked about so far. Right. So let's get into the intruder theories. So the second arena, the... The second option, if it's not the Ramseys, is that there was an intruder. Police and prosecutors did follow leads for intruders because there was an unidentified boot mark left in the basement room where John Bonet's body was found. Okay. The first person that we're going to talk about 
is neighbor Bill McReynolds. He played Santa Claus at the Christmas party that they were at at Fleet White Town. He played Santa Claus at the Christmas party that they were at, at Fleet White House. The first person we're going to talk about is Bill McReynolds, who played Santa Claus at the Christmas party that night. Mm -hmm. There was also a family housekeeper that was looked into, and a man named Michael Helgoth, who died after completing suicide shortly after John Bonet's death. Mm -hmm. Bill McReynolds, the Santa Claus theory. This theory is that Bill McReynolds or someone dressed up as Santa Claus broke into the home, sexually abused John Bonet, killed her, and then tried to stage the scene and cover it up. There's I personally don't find it likely to be Bill McReynolds or someone random dressed up as Santa Claus because there would be more evidence of that. Right. There would be like the Santa suit fibers, or they would have found more footprints, or they would have found something that would indicate someone dressed up as Santa came in here. So that made me think. So they went to this Christmas party and that was the night. Was she sexually abused at the Christmas party? Was it a prior thing to the murder? And then the murder happened later. That is another theory. There was a really strong, strongly held opinion by a small group of people on the internet That in Boulder, there is an incredibly wealthy and exclusive pedophile ring. Wouldn't shock me, like, if we're being really honest. I also am, like, extremely believable, but I don't know that they would be, like, doing that at a family Christmas party where everyone's wives and kids are, right? Right. Like, that doesn't track, that part of it doesn't track to me. Right. And for me, it's more thinking of majority of the time. In these kind of cases, it is a family member. It is a, like, close friend of the family who is doing the sexual abuse to children. And so, it in the autopsy, they wouldn't necessarily know the estimated time of when the sexual abuse occurred versus the murder occurred. You get that window, but especially being the same day, there's no way to have that conclusive timeline. And all the contamination of evidence. Right. Right. The housekeepers looked into mainly because of knowing the wealth of the Ramseys and knowing the home is Mm -hmm. my understanding. There wasn't really a lot past that. I don't have anything on Michael Helgoth other than he was like a very attractive early suspect who was ruled out, even though people do look at him completing suicide very suspiciously. Sure. Because of the timing. (laughs) Was there any evidence that he would have been around the family or in the home hundreds of dna tests were performed to find a match to the dna recovered during the autopsy and they did not make a match sure so i would assume they got dna results from all of these people but we're talking about the boulder police so (laughs) detective smith who resigned eventually in the case believed that an intruder had committed the crime his reasoning was that on the night John Bonet was killed, there was two windows that had been left open a little bit because there was cords from Christmas lights coming mm-hmm. inside the house. And that someone had broken in through the basement window that was broken. This theory is very criticized because in photos from the crime scene, you can see that there is an intact cobweb. 
And what's the difference between a spider web and a cobweb? Age. Dust and age. <laughs> yep. Thank you, the staircase. That's how I know that. Oh. A cobweb is a spider web that has collected dust and been undisturbed for quite a while. The steel grate covering the window also had undisturbed cobwebs, and all of the bushes around the gate were totally undisturbed. Yeah. Smith is the proponent of one theory that has been pushed very, very, very hard, which is that John Benet had been tased with a stun gun. I do believe that there were some red marks on her skin, but I don't know that they ever conclusively were tied to a taser. I feel okay. like that would have been present in the autopsy stuff that I looked up. Correct. There was a book written called Presumed Guilty, an investigation into the John Benet Ramsey case, the media, and the culture of pornography by Stephen Singular. It talks about consultations with cybercrime specialists who believe that John Benet, due to her beauty pageant experience, could potentially have attracted the attention of child pornographers and pedophiles. It was also determined that there had been more than 100 burglaries in that neighborhood of Boulder in the months before John Bonet's murder. There were also 38 registered sex offenders living within a two-mile radius of the Ramsey's home. Mm -hmm. In 2001, a former Boulder County prosecutor and Boulder County Sheriff's detective said that they believe there should be a more aggressive investigation into the intruder theory. Duh. Right? Like, it's... The family wasn't convicted, so... Logically, you will look into other options. Let's talk about some suspects or people that got involved with the case. One person identified as a suspect was Gary Howard Olivia. He was arrested for two counts of attempted sexual exploitation of a child and one count of sexual exploitation of a child in June 2016. He was publicly identified as a suspect in 2002 on an episode of 48 Hours Investigates. About the John Bonet case. A&E broadcast a special on John Bonet on September 5th, 2016, and they concluded that an unidentified male was responsible for John Bonet's death based on the DNA evidence. Because the Ramseys had developed a closer relationship with DA Mary Lacey in her office, it was really criticized, especially by the city's mayor, Leslie Durgin. The DA's office being close with the Ramseys, and then they have this intruder theory. It's a little fishy. Well, I think it's also suspect being that another DA didn't sign the indictment. Yes. Right? Like, they obviously have some connections with it. Right. Gordon Coombs, who had joined the DA's office as an investigator under Mary Lacey when they were testing the clothing for touch DNA said that Mary Lacey openly and strongly supported the intruder theory and talked about it with all of the staff. Even though he was not directly involved with the case, he said that he was warned not to challenge her theory unless he wanted to lose his job. What? Sure. Sure. Okay. Now, I remember when this next thing happened because it was right before I was going away to college. August 15th, 2006, John Mark Carr, a 41-year-old elementary school teacher, is arrested in Bangkok, Thailand, because he falsely confessed to murdering John Bonet. You said falsely. Yes. He claimed that he had drugged John Bonet, sexually assaulted her, and accidentally killed her. 
Authorities find no evidence linking John Mark Carr to the crime scene. Was he from Boulder? Was he... In his confession, he had only provided basic facts that were publicly known and failed to provide any convincing details. The The claim that he had drugged John Bonet was highly doubted because there was an autopsy. No drugs were found in her system. Right. John Mark Carr was living in Thailand and was arrested for child pornography. That's when he said, hey, it was me. I killed John Bonet Ramsey. He's like, let me get out of, let me get out of jail in Thailand. Falsely confess this murder so I don't have to come back. Yes. On October 26, 2006, John Mark Carr was looking for a literary agent to help publish a manuscript that some people might find controversial. Really, everyone's just trying to get a book deal out of this. I read an article where someone was quoted as saying, every single person who has written about the John Bonet Ramsey case has just been trying to make money off her blood. Yeah. Extremely true. I, that's accurate. Why else would you be publishing these books? Let's talk a little bit about some of the publishing things and defamation lawsuits as we come to a close here. Lynn Wood was the Ramsey family libel attorney, and they filed defamation lawsuits against many people and companies all the way back to 1999. Mm -hmm. They sued Star Magazine and its parent company, American Media Incorporated, on behalf of Burke in 1999. Mm -hmm. Defamation suits have been filed by the Ramseys and many family friends against several unnamed media outlets. A defamation suit was filed in 2001 against the authors and publishers of John Bonet inside the Ramsey murder investigation. John and Patsy were sued in two defamation lawsuits arising from the publication of their book, The Death of Innocence. These suits were brought by two people who were named in the book, who were said to have been investigated by Boulder police as suspects. The Ramseys were defended in these lawsuits by Linwood and three other attorneys out of Atlanta. They were able to get both of these lawsuits dismissed. He has the money to hire those lawyers who make it very easy to get these things dismissed. Yes. In November 2006, Rod Westmoreland, a friend of John Ramsey, filed a defamation suit against an anonymous web surfer who had posted two messages on internet forums using the pseudonym Under the Radar that had implicated Westmoreland in the murder, mm-hmm. which is why we can't, this is all speculation. This is all just opinion. Yes. Just to be clear. Just as a little clarifying note. Just to be clear. I did not write these theories and would never legally accuse someone. Just to be clear. That was beautiful. I didn't Thank know you. this was going to turn into a musical. Thank you. During during the September 2016 CBS program, the case of John Benet Ramsey, forensic pathologist Werner Spitz had accused Burke of killing his sister. On October 6, 2016, Burke filed a defamation lawsuit against him. Burke and his attorneys sought a total of $150 million in punitive and compensatory damages. Just because they said what everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of people are already thinking. Yes. On December 28, 2016, Burke Ramsey's lawyers filed an additional civil lawsuit accusing CBS and their production company, Critical Content LLC, seven of the experts and consultants with defamation of character. They seek $250 million in damages and $500 million in punitive damages. So, in my opinion, when you are suing for that much money and suing that many people... 
You're trying to cover something up. In January 2018, a judge denies CBS's motion to dismiss, and the suit proceeds. In January 2019, Lynn Wood announced that the lawsuit was settled and all parties were satisfied. So that was a pretty chunk of change. Yes. But I will say, if he is innocent, you absolutely should go after people who are accusing you of murder on TV and making money from it. All those experts got paid for their participation. Right. Yes, I think there is that side of it. But I think... The important clarification, the most important clarification is the O.J. Simpson, if he did it. Like, I can't stress that enough. Because my feelings will flip on a dime, Burke, if you were involved. 2021, Burke comes out with... If I did it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Those are the theories, the lawsuits, the evidence. I am sure there's stuff that I didn't dive into. There's a lot of uncorroborated rumors that I remember and was like, oh, that's a fact. And then could not find anything to indicate that. What do you think? I think it's a very complicated case because of all the evidence that really screwed up the entire case, right? There were so many things that went wrong that... I don't think it will ever be proven in court what happened. Like, that is impossible to do because of everything. However, I think there's so many questions I have that cannot be answered. Who wrote the note? Sam, the first night at bed when you left, Ron made out with two girls and put his head between a cocktail waitress breasts, also was grinding with multiple fat women. When you left crying at Clutch, Ron was holding hands and dancing with a female and took down her number. Multiple people in the house know, therefore you should know the truth. I gotta go. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Oh my god. So, yeah. I mean, do you have anything else you want to say or any theories that you didn't touch on? Other questions besides who wrote the note? I mean, I think really the whole thing is just suspect i really do believe that in some way shape or form one of the family members is involved because there's no way that all these coincidences happened without one of them being involved at some point my updated 2021 theory is that burke is not responsible and patsy and john are not responsible there was an intruder Patsy and John find the body. They put together that she has been sexually abused. And to avoid, I guess, in my opinion, they want to avoid like the media or they they stage the scene is my theory for whatever their cockamamie reasons are. And that's how the garrote comes into play and the cord mm-hmm. comes into play. Right, because it was in an art box. Right. And so it's one of those where it's not going to be some random intruder finding that. And so that's where I really mean, I think it could have been an intruder. I think it could have been maybe a friend of the family. But in some way, shape or form, one of the Ramseys did something to either stage it or cover something up or something. Right. One thing that I do want to just throw out there that is completely uncorroborated by any actual evidence. I remember... In one of my deep, deep dives into this case years ago, reading that on the day that John Bonet's body was discovered, John Ramsey and Fleet White just dipped out for about an hour and 45 minutes and allegedly went for a walk up to Chautauqua. 
had a bit of a chit chat, and then came back. Again, I couldn't find anything to like nail this down and give a source on this. This is just a vague memory I have from years and years ago. But I remember because when I moved to Boulder, I was very invested in figuring out how far away that was and how long that walk would have taken. Mm -hmm. Imagine my surprise to learn that Chautauqua is about a 10-minute walk from the Ramsey house. Mm -hmm. So to go for an hour, hour and a half, hour 45 minutes, whatever it ended up to be, that meant that you went on a more secluded trail. You didn't just go the main trail near the parking lot. Right. I mean, we've both been there. Like, I I know how close it is to the house. It's a minimal walk at best. We've both been there. Like, we know how close it is to the Ramsey house. And there are, yes, some more secluded trails. That's going to take you longer to walk to Chautauqua just to get maybe a walk to cleanse your mind and, like, just get away from the scene. I think that makes sense. Maybe not for that long. Yes. Yeah. I also am like, if this is true, why would the police let him leave? Why? But again, I don't know. I don't know that this is true. I have no evidence. I just remember reading this somewhere and then was not able to source that again for this recording. Well, he was seen as the victim, so they're going to let him go. I think another thing is that at this point in time... Not as much was known about child murders and investigations and child sexual abuse, right? A lot of those things were handled very poorly and investigated very poorly. A lot of what happens now is directly out of suspicion of how the Ramses behaved. The victim counseling, yeah, that might still be a thing, but you can bet your sweet took us that there is another cop who is watching them and just observing their behavior, and that's their whole job. Right. Not Linda Arndt, let's gather up this prayer circle. I understand you want to comfort the family. I understand that religion was a big part of their lives. I'm not knocking that. I think the decision to gather around a little girl's dead body and do a prayer circle is extremely ghoulish and very odd. That's my personal take. Other people have different relationships with religion and prayer. I understand that. I just would hell no myself out of there. Well, it's not just, hey, we just found this body. Let's pray. They were praying over a small child's dead body. Next to the fucking Christmas tree, dude. That's not, in my opinion, like, that's not right. No. No. So, end of the day, there are no answers in this episode. There is only wild speculation, like I promised at the top. I had a lot of fun recording this with you over the course of two days. Um, (laughs) Just a little interruption. You know, sometimes you got to take a little break. Sometimes your neighbor's a psychopath with the bass way too loud. You got to go talk to him two times in a row. Here we are. Thanks so much for joining. I'm so excited that we got to record in person. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. And listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Hi, friends. If you like the podcast, I would love if you would go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the only place that I can actually get ratings and get reviews and get ranked. Please check us out on Instagram at Monsters Walk With Us. 
all one word. And I'd love if you could send us an email and tell me where you're listening from, maybe suggest a case. The email address is hidden period monsters period walk at gmail.com. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.